With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Sarah Rigby, online assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. In the UK, one in four people experience a mental health problem each year. The reality of living with common problems like depression and anxiety is increasingly well known. But how much do you actually know about what's going on in your brain when your mental health suffers? Neuroscientist Dean Burnett, author of the new book Psychological, is here to tell us all about it. So can you first please just tell us what your book is about, please? Um, psychological, two words, very clever, as I keep saying whenever I say that. Uh, <laughs> it's basically, it's a book about mental health, but not, um, unlike most mental health books you find on the market, all of which are fine, I'm just, it's not a sort of slur against anyone else, but <laughs> it's a book about mental health uh, as a process, as a scientific uh, phenomenon, which we sort of, we have a recognition of, an understanding of, uh, you know, what's going on. Uh, internally when our mental health declines or suffers or is compromised in some way because there's a big um, push now it has been for many years for mental health awareness to raise awareness of it and to um, increase understanding but personally uh, I've always felt that as good as that is and as noble and as useful as that is awareness is only part of the battle I think you need to have um, an understanding of what's going wrong uh, before you can really have any sort of genuine appreciation for the matters. Because if I'm being you know, very sort of pessimistic, I would say the majority of mental health awareness campaigns, you can boil the message down to something like, depression is real, pass it on. And <laughs> that's, which is fine. It's a very valid thing to say, but it's also like, well, that's not really the most persuasive argument. So I thought, well, given I've spent um, 20 years dabbling, dabbling? No, <laughs> I'm not a dabbler. I'm, I'm a neuroscientist. I've got a PhD in everything. <laughs> Sorry, I'm one of those imposter syndrome phenomenon. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, I've, I've been working in neuroscience for like well over 20 years now and um, from undergraduate level. And I spent like seven years as a psychiatry lecturer for a master's course. So my knowledge and experience is very much uh, wide and ranging in terms of the 
underlying science rather than the, the actual everyday experience. So I thought, well, maybe there's room for, for that side of things too, to say like, well, yes, we all, you know, most people agree now that mental health problems are genuinely real things and they affect us all in many different ways. And if they don't affect us directly, society itself is affected by them. But why? Why does this happen? What's going on in our heads when mental health declines? What do we know about it? And what can be done about it? And why does, does it keep happening? That's the sort of questions I wanted to tackle in this book, particularly. So it's a focus on mental health, but the actual the science of it, insofar as we know. So that's what I've put. That was my attempt to do. Anyway, some people might read it and think I failed, but that was the that was the intention. So generally speaking, what is it in our brains that can go so wrong and cause mental health problems? Well, well, that's uh, that's that's, <laughs> that's, that's a hole in our bottom, isn't it? <laughs> There's a lot happening in any one brain, which um, any one part of which can be compromised in some way, which can sort of suffer for. Just pure quirks of biology due to external experiences, to uh, unrecognized issues with development. There, there are so many different factors which feed into it. And like a mental health problem manifests in so many both varied and intangible ways. I mean, you can't, that's one of the big problems I sort of addressed early on in that there's a lot of comparisons made lately with uh, between mental and physical health problems. And Again, I think my, my, my argument would be that there are times when that is a very valid thing to do, a very uh, suitable and helpful approach. When you're dealing with someone who doesn't recognize mental health problems or doesn't agree that they're a thing, it, it's almost inevitable that you will contextualize them in the form of something they will recognize. So even if someone says depression's not real, there's no such thing as mental health problems, you very rarely find a similar person who would say the same thing about physical ailments because everyone's had something at some point. I mean, the human body is not a perfectly flawless machine and you don't go through life without ever having even so much as a stubbed toe or a cold or a headache or a broken bone or an injury of some sort. So these are, you know, people, people recognize these. And even if they don't have them themselves, they can, other people have around them. And you can see them. You can see like, well, we know how the human body's meant to look. So, is growing extra lumps and it's turning green. You know, well, that's that's wrong. There's something really, really uh, gone awry there. Uh, but you can't really do that mental health problems because the manifestation of them in the real physical world is via other people's behavior, which is always changing, always um, you know, in flux because we are complex creatures. But even having said all that, you know, I thought, well, it'd be good to maybe try and um, impose some tangible aspect to it by looking at the brain because obviously that's where all our thoughts and behaviors and emotions and moods arise from so yeah there's plenty going on in the brain which can go physically awry or physically wrong and we can look at that and say well that's what's causing this mental health problem as we recognize it so in terms of the underlying biology there's again there's a lot of things going on but a lot of it seems to come down to a lot of it in terms of the more common mental health ailments we're talking anxiety and depression and uh, things related to those Come down to sort of, it seems to be like a an end result of stress in some form, and I think stress is such a common term now. We sorry you say it is you know, almost an offhand manner, say, oh, just a bit work stressed or you know, the stress of everyday life. But it's you know, it's a genuine physiological process in that it's the precursor to the fight or flight uh, response. It's like your body getting warmed up to deal with dangers and threats. And the thing about way I describe it is, if the fight or flight response is like the big bad boss end of a computer game. Stress is like the, the hordes of minions they send at you, so you have to wade through <laughs> to to get to that point. And like they're not as potent and powerful as the big boss, but they can do a lot of damage 
And if there's more of them, then yeah, they, they wear you down eventually. And one thing, you know, as impressive and uh, brilliant as the human brain is and all it's evolved to do, one thing it seemingly hasn't evolved to do, um, insofar as it's evolved to do anything, you know, evolution doesn't have a end point, it's just something keeps happening. But long-term chronic stress isn't something the brain has a good ability to deal with, because that's not meant to happen. Like in the wild, you think of it, okay, things to stress you out will be immediate dangers and threats, or you know, things like, you know, even if it's like low food supplies, when you, as soon as you find something, the stress goes away. But because we have these big, powerful brains now, we can envisage scenarios which will negatively impact us without physically hurting us, like losing a job or a relationship going sour or well, you know, people get stressed out by the idea of the economy going downhill and their savings not having as much value. These are things which do not have any direct physical impact on you and you have no control over, but you can worry about them and they might never happen. People can get really stressed out about things which haven't happened and may never happen. And sometimes we get stressed about things which definitely did not happen and now cannot happen. We've probably all done it. Like you think you cross a road and a car speeds past. Like, oh, a second earlier, if I'd crossed earlier, that could have hit me and I'd been <laughs> killed. And that stresses us out. Like, that didn't happen. We know it didn't happen. <laughs> We're fine. And it cannot physically happen. And we cannot go back in time. But we get stressed anyway. So and the, the constant low-level pulse of stress chemicals impacts on our brain and body in various different ways. And it can sort of lower the immune system. It can exhaust neurons. That's, that's one of the leading theories of how depression works now. It's not about chemical imbalances. That's kind of an old-school theory now. It's more to do, not that the chemicals aren't you know, gone different to how they should be, but that seems to be more of a symptom, not a cause, in that neurons become exhausted by the constant stress chemicals. So they not so much shut down, they go into standby, like they just do the bare minimum what they can. And some of those are parts of the brain which control mood and how we change mood and shift and we respond well to things. So and they, you know, that feeds in quite nicely with a lot of the typical symptoms of depression, the inability to change from a low mood, the inability to feel anything in response to something positive or, you know, like the complete lack of motivation. It's, you know, it makes sense to think big chunks of my you know, neural networks, which would allow this behavior, are currently suppressed. They've just been spent by the, the stress response. And similarly, on the other, in different parts of the brain, the stress chemicals are like the threat recognition. They stimulate those parts of the brain, which keep us on edge and look for dangers. And if those parts are overworked, maybe they'll become like a muscle. They get more powerful and stronger and they tip the balance and therefore you get anxiety where people are constantly worried about things which aren't there, which may not be there. There's a low-level state of panic because the parts of your brain which respond to threats and dangers are now being overworked and they're overstimulated and they've sort of beefed up. And you know, but it, it, these are very simplistic ways of looking at it in that it's obviously a lot more complex than that. But if you look at these terms, you can sort of understand, well, well that, it makes perfect sense that that would happen now because the modern world is so generous with things that stress us out and the human modern human brain can find them if, if, even if there aren't any. And you know, therefore you get all these you know, abundant cases of anxiety and depression and things like that because you know, the world is seemingly set up and the brain works in a way that you know, these things are pretty much inevitable. Right, so... If, let's talk more specifically about depression and if as you say the um the world's generally quite quite stressful hmm. what surely we're all exposed to that so what what is it that triggers depression in particular people and not in everybody yeah that's a again valid point we're all kind of exposed to that i mean 
I think it's sort of misleading to think there will be one root cause of depression or any mental health problem. It's, it's always going to be a combination of factors. Like when there are heritability factors when it comes to depression. People of certain genotypes from certain families, uh, they have a higher risk of depression. So like if your parents or one of your parents had depression, like the odds of you having depression are increased because it's known to have there are genetic factors which lead to it or lead to a vulnerability to it. But that doesn't mean that if you have this gene, you will have depression. If you don't, you won't. It's just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a balance of risks in that, you know, so if the average person is 5% chance of developing depression, then someone with this gene type will have 10% chance. Both unlikely, but one is twice as unlikely as the other and so on. So there will be genetic factors, which like, even things like, you know, a certain gene which, doesn't which which is sort of slightly distorted or just different to the point where it doesn't ex- produce enough like neurotrophic growth growth hormone which like certain parts of your brain won't be as resilient or well connected as others and therefore depression can occur because it doesn't lead to the right stress suppression and so on and so on so even like little things like that um childhood experiences if you were if you've grown up in a sort of more traumatic environment or just a less um stable, more chaotic, more confusing, more stressful one, then your brain will develop in certain ways which perhaps will be wary of stress or like it'll seek it out even more because you've grown up thinking, ah, well, I should be, you know, I got them, uh, my childhood experiences say that the world is a dangerous place, so I will be constantly wary of dangerous things and therefore you look, seek them out and then you become more stressed that way. Or even just something like nutrition, like, you know, you don't build up the physical resilience uh, in, terms of, in terms of how the brain works to fend off things i mean again the brain has so much redundancy in it so much fail safe and so much extra processing which can take over and it's so flexible that even people with brain injury can make good recoveries especially if they're young because the brain's still developing and it'll, it'll find workarounds but anyway these abilities are finite and some people if you've been dealing with stress a long time or if you're already sort of running at a bit of a running at a loss is perhaps a hard way of saying it but if you're already dealing with a predisposition to stress or low mood, and your brain's constantly working harder to to fix that or to do that, to, to, to deal with the, the consequences of that. So then when something else happens, like a particularly strong life stress, like the, the, um, the Holmes-Rahi stress scale, like the maximum thing, worst thing that happen is the death of a partner, death of a spouse, and it goes down from there. Like things like, like retirement can be very stressful, even if you plan to do it, because you know, it's a massive change to your life or divorce and you know, things like that. These are all big triggers of stress. And if you already have a lot of stress to deal with, then that can be enough to push you over the edge into, right, now I've got a, now your brain's suddenly gone, right, I genuinely cannot handle this anymore. And therefore, um, you know, just, you know, it spirals from there. So like, I can't handle this. I'm going to shut down for a bit. And then you have your depression, you have your anxious episodes, you have your quote unquote nervous breakdowns, as people tend to refer to them. It, it, it pushes you over the limit to the brain can cope, to can't cope. The way that line resides is going to differ from many different people. And, you know, some will have a predisposition, some will have a lot of cognitive reserve. And that's, that can be a big deal. There's a lot of studies which show, like, how adept and healthy and how much resource your brain has can be a massive protective factor. You can even stave off things like dementia. Even if you have the underlying pathology, people who have, like, lived healthy lives and constantly kept learning things and stayed active and use their brain, they tend to show very few little symptom or sign of dementia, even if their brain has 
if you, if you took a sample of the brain, we showed this person's got terrible dementia, but they don't um, because <clears throat> the brain's sort of alert and active and capable. Um, but then, <clears throat> for many people, the modern world doesn't allow them to build up this reserve. It, you know, it takes and takes rather than allows them to give and give. And some people will end up with depression as a result of that. So yeah, there's loads of different factors. But you know, it, it's not, I think, important to point out, no one's a failure if you've got depression. That's the thing. It's, it, obviously, it'll lead to that sort of thinking. But it's it's going to happen in like, the way the world works. And it's just, it's often the case of someone who's got depression or had depression and just had a lot more to deal with than most people. You mentioned earlier that um, bereavement was one of the most stressful events that, that the brain could deal with. Um, mm. So in in grief, people tend to feel a lot of the same sort of, of things as you'd expect to to be symptoms of depression. So, you know, the low mm. mood for a long period of time, things like that. So what exactly is, is the difference between grief and, and depression? Uh, yeah, so obviously this is a really big issue at the moment because we're living in the middle of a pandemic. And um, as I've, I've been wrecking myself, like I lost my father very early on the pandemic and it was very unexpected. He was no prior health problems. He was, wasn't even 60 yet. And it came out of nowhere and I had to deal with that all by myself. So I, I do delve into that, obviously, in the book and stuff. And it was extremely traumatic. It was extremely debilitating and very hard time. So I, you know, I, I can speak from experience in this regard and you know, it's, Less than a year ago, I wouldn't say I'm over it, but I'm functioning. And again, some people, a lot of people ask me, oh, being a neuroscientist who delves in mental health, was that helpful for dealing with your own grief and stuff? And I think it was in hindsight. To me, at the time, it didn't feel like it was helping. But I think it, I never got to the point where I couldn't function. So maybe there was a protective factor in knowing how this works and what's going on in my head when this is going on. But on the other hand, it's also I think the analogy I use. It's like being a trained mechanic trapped in a car with no brakes on the motorway. You're like, I know what the problem is. But I can't do anything about it right now. I've just <laughs> got to wait until this is over and hopefully I'll survive the whole thing. So, yeah, so you know, it can be a helpful thing. So like, this is why I always try and educate people or say the more you know about what's going on, the more resilient you can be because it's, at least it's not scary or uncertain. You've got to handle on what's happening. But um, back to the original question. Yeah, so... It, you know, how you diagnose grief and depression is a is it is a tricky one. It is actually um, it's an ongoing debate, and it's um, can be a source of controversy. Like um, the DSM, which is the the American Psych- Psychiatric Association, their go to manual for what counts as a mental health problem, what doesn't, you know, a diagnosis or not. And the fifth edition was revised a few years back, and people were quite alarmed by how many things now count as. Uh, a psychiatric diagnosis, whereas before you think that was just general human behavior, like people cite, cite tantrums, like children having tantrums is now recognized as a psychiatric problem. I think, well, the kids just have tantrums. That's just another case of over-medicalizing, trying to sort of find problems the pharmaceutical companies can charge for medicines and make lots of money off. And no, that's definitely a problem which does have to be, or should be addressed and paid more attention to. But on the other side of the coin, there's the you know, the, the people who put that in, they would argue, you know, before now, kids who had chronic tantrums, the point where they couldn't control their behavior and their parents couldn't do anything about it, where it's clearly causing disruption, they were being diagnosed as having bipolar problems and therefore would end up on far more severe medication, like far more powerful stuff, which you'd rather not do for a small child. So 
if there's a tantrum as a separate diagnosis, you say, oh, well, you can do this, then maybe you can give them much milder interventions or some sort of therapy rather than powerful medications. So no, there's two sides of every argument. The grief thing is a tricky one in that, like you say, when you lose someone close to you, it's the most traumatic, harrowing experience possible. And you will show behavior and thinking and emotional and mood symptoms which are very similar to that of depression. The general approach, as far as I can make out, is that it's a, it's a question of how long it lasts. Because, you know, people experiencing grief will be laid low for weeks, months at a time. Depends on the nature of how it happened. Um, but if it's like after six months, nine months, and they still show no signs of any change in their behavior and thinking, then that's where um, a chronic grief reaction comes in. Or like, it's like, okay, so now... Now we can probably have some of the intervention here because they clearly aren't moving on. They aren't processing this. It's a serious emotional change or a serious emotional impact on them. And these things take time to work through. But they do eventually happen. And the brain is adept at doing that. Like we are very emotional creatures, but we also have a lot of processes in place in our brains to work through these things. And if you're not sure any sign of that, that's what, that's when you can sort of say, okay, this seems like it's a problem rather than just the normal process. So it's more, more comes down to how much change there is. I mean, that, that's how depression is sort of diagnosed anyway, not over a period of months, but weeks, and that people have low moods all the time. You know, it's very common to be sad about things, especially now we're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, lots of things are going wrong and there's lots of things to be unhappy about in the wider world. So people being in a low mood state, being unhappy, being sad, being just like, I can't be bothered, I can't do this anymore, is common. But the difference between that and depression is, uh, A, severity. You know, people with depression tend to be very, very low mood rather than just a brief melancholy. Uh, but perhaps even more indicative is how long this lasts. Because a mood doesn't normally last two weeks. You know, it, um, you, your mood can change a couple of days or you, know, you have ups and downs. So when the mood is unchanged or stays the same for two weeks or like the best part thereof, that's when you think, okay, this doesn't seem right because one thing the brain doesn't do, it stay the same constantly in mood and emotion and thinking. So, yeah, it, it comes a lot of it comes down to just the duration of the symptoms rather than what the symptoms actually are themselves. That's like a big um, interesting aspect which people seem to not really recognize and that, yes, we, have, we all have these different emotions and we all have these bad and good experiences, but how long they last can be the deciding factor between general brain behavior and um, you know, mental health problem. Um, so as you say, there will be a lot of people at the minute going through bereavements. Um, what, Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to them to, uh, I suppose, experience grief in a, in a healthy way? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not that tricky in that, it's tricky in that obviously everyone's going to be different. It's going to be each to their own. People are going to have different uh, experiences of what they're going through, how it happens, how it manifests, who they have with them, what the situation is. Because like, I would say it was particularly hard for me when it happened because um, it was like middle of the most of the earliest lockdown where we were cut off from family. I don't live down the road from my family. I'm like 30 miles away from my closest relatives. So I had no one I could really depend on. Like, you know, when someone normally, when this sort of happens, when you lose somebody close to you, people rally around they gather around they do things for you like they take care of the kids the house the cooking and stuff and they just pop in to see if you're okay it's it's a very human compulsion and a good one a very healthy one 
but we couldn't do that. And on top of that, like I live with my wife and my two small children, and both they were both very sort of it was lockdown. They were scared. They were out of school. They just lost their grandfather. They didn't know what was happening. So I couldn't really afford to indulge my grief in terms of just sit around doing nothing, which is what I wanted to do. I had to still be dad, still be strong, and provide a you know, reassurance for them. So it was really hard to do that. I did it. Uh, you know, I'm not saying it didn't cost me, but I, I did it, and. That's cool. I was lucky enough to have the resources to do that. I've lived a relatively charmed existence the past few years in terms of nothing particularly bad happening. You know, there's no, I have no particular concerns and stuff. So it's, yeah, so like I was in the position where I could, I could do that. Like I, I was hit with a particularly hard version of it, but also had the resources to throw at it mentally, cognitively. Uh, not everyone will have that. And I think it's important to recognize that there's no particular path to, through grief which you have to take or you should be following. I mean, it's a very common cultural reference, the whole five stages of grief thing, you know, um, was it uh, denial, anger, fear, bargaining, acceptance, or some variation of, of that. I mean, it, it pops up in sitcoms all the time, in films, and like when you experience grief, you go through these five stages and that's how it works. But that's not really how it works at all in that, um, I mean, Human brain is never that predictable and that reliable in any case, even especially when it comes to something which is a really profound emotional experience. That's that's when it gets its most chaotic and most unpredictable. But even the psychiatrist who first came up with these grief stages, she never said originally that everyone will go through these stages of grief at all times and in this order. They're more like a recognition of the parts of grief which can occur, more sort of common clustering things in, oh, this person is grieving and they seem to be experiencing uh, denial, or this person seems to be angry, and that's fine. But it doesn't mean like, oh, that's before uh, fear, that's after you know, denial. So there's no logic to that. So you, if you're grieving and you find yourself confused by your emotions, your experiences, your reactions, then that's fine. There's no sort of template for this which you have to be following. And I think it's really important to keep that in mind. Everyone's grief is going to be their own. They're going to deal with it in their own way. I mean, I got very angry a lot for no reason. I mean, I had people message me with, with, with very you know, positive things, wanted to you know, experience in expressing sorrow on my behalf and saying I wish they could help and stuff. And I would clearly well meant, clearly a friendly gesture, clearly sort of heartfelt, comes from a place of love. But I used, kept getting really angry at that at first and that. You wish you could help, but you know you can't. It's a lockdown. My father's died. There's nothing you can do. You're just making yourself be, feel better. How dare you? And like, I didn't say that to anyone, but it, it, it went through my head a lot. And that, you know, at the time, it felt weird. It felt wrong. But in hindsight, I realized, now, well, that's, that's okay. Because you know, as long as I wasn't hurting anyone, I want to express my feelings that way, then so be it. That's what I'll do. So, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's important to recognize Especially now, when we're sort of cut off from so much and we have so few options for uh, venting our stress or you know, make ourselves feel better, you know, all your pastimes and leisure pursuits, they're all cut off for the time being. So, yeah, when you experience some grief, you, you will be doing it in your own way. And that's important to recognize that you are, your grief is your own. And you, you know, if it's going this way for you, then that's how it is. You know, if it's going another way, that's fine. If you if you stay stuck in one place for too long, then yeah, then you can sort of start being concerned. But you work through it how you need to work through it. And no one can tell you that this is wrong. You should be doing this. 
that's when it can be made worse, I think. So if someone is suffering from depression and they they decide to go and get help for it, they might get um they might get prescribed um antidepressants. Um what mm-hmm. do antidepressants actually do in the brain? Um sort of sort of it's uh, kind of an interesting one. I mean, I think it's it's to me it's been a good sign that the mental health awareness campaigns are working in recent years because when I started writing about stuff like this, we were talking about like at least like 10, 15 years ago, between that that sort of time. Um, you know, you still see a lot of arguments or like online, obviously, obviously online arguments, that's where arguments happen, we know that. But, um, <laughs> but it's, it was all like, you know, people dismissing depression as a thing. No, no, no such thing as depression as people attention seeking. It's, you know, drama queens. It's just snap out of it and all that sort of stuff. Um, you still get that occasionally from the more, you know, extreme controversial pundits, but more often than not now, depression is accepted as a real thing. And now it's, you know, the, the more go-to argument is that antidepressants aren't a thing rather than depression. It's like, they're just a scam. They're just um, something pharmaceutical companies push on us to make money. Or like you, you hear so many people saying, encountering someone like, you know, like a personal trainer, say, well, like, first thing we do is get you off those pills. And then this judgment and sort of stereotyping and pill shaming of people who are on antidepressants. So, there's a lot of work to be done there, but yes, um, it's it's a controversial area, I suppose. <clears throat> People have been written books about it. I mean, how you shouldn't take antidepressants, which is wrong and bad in many <laughs> so many ways. And the so what they do is we turn to the class of antidepressants you've got in that there are lots of different variations uh, available at the moment, like the mainstream ones, which have been validated and sent through trials and they're just readily available. And, you know, you've got your tricyclic amines, you've got your monoamine oxidase inhibitors, you've got your SSRIs, your SNRIs, and so on. But what they all do is some variation on increasing the levels of certain neurotransmitters in the brain, and which, is, which I believe is where this whole chemical imbalance argument or belief comes from, in that you've got your regular brain, you've got... You know, levels of certain chemicals, namely neurotransmitters, which the brain needs to do everything it does. That's how neurons communicate with each other. And in people with depression, in this case, some of those chemical levels are reduced uh, for reasons unknown, and that causes depression. So you take an antidepressant, it puts those levels back up, and that cures depression. Um, That seems to be the assumption or the view of it by a lot of people. Hence this chemical imbalance claim is quite widespread. But that was, I mean, it's logical to make that conclusion because that's, like antidepressants were discovered essentially by accident in uh, like the 50s when they were looking for different things, like things to take on uh, to deal with surgical shock or soothe people and they found people's moods sort of being elevated and they took them long enough and no, something was up uh, up here and they found that they're antidepressants. And that's what they do. Like, they stop the removal of neurotransmitters after they've been used. They stay around longer, so it brings levels back up and so on and so on. Um, But the main thing is, like, they... Neurotransmitters... Antidepressants work on the chemical level right away. You take one, your neurotransmitter levels are increased, like, minutes later. But most of the widely available transmitters... Most of the widely available antidepressants now... Uh, they take like between two and three weeks to kick in, which is a long time. And it's weird. And if they work straight away chemically, why do they take so long to have any you know, actual 
relief of the symptoms of depression. And which this reveals that it's not just about the chemical levels, it's something more profound than that, it's something more deep and complex. And to go into like the neuroplasticity thing from earlier, it's now sort of believed by many that what antidepressants do, they sort of slowly but surely build up the activity in these suppressed neurons by causing more activity to act on them uh, by boosting transmitter levels. So like sort of like sort of blowing on the spark of a campfire, just like coaxing it back to life. And one of the things of that is that the um, all pretty much all modern antidepressants, not all, but all the main ones, they are they work on monoamine neurotransmitters, which are all the various neurotransmitters, your noradrenalines, your dopamine, your oxytocin, these are all monoamine class. It just means like there's an amine molecule attached to the general thing, uh, which are very important neurotransmitters in the brain, but they take up a sort of rather relatively small percentage of the brain, sort of like in terms of how the brain mass is layered or how it works. The monoamine systems are like sort of the veins that run through marble, kind of everywhere, but a small part of it. And so if you boost activity in the monoamine system, which all antidepressants do at the moment, or pretty much all of them, they will have sort of a more slow and gradual effect because they're not really affecting that many neurons in the brain, but the activity sort of spreads out slowly, like, you know, like, like sort of like fertilizing a plant. You sort of just put it in there and it slowly seeps out. Um, but there's been sort of a lot of developments recently into more potent antidepressants, like, um, well, it was a 2019 end of, I think, America first, in the States, the first um, ketamine antidepressant was released for use in the sort of early trials and stuff. And it's a nasal spray, it's not even a pill. And it seems to work next day or maybe in a few hours, because ketamine, uh, for all its uh, faults, <laughs> it's a very potent chemical. It's not that. It, it works on the glutamate system, which... Um, makes about 80% of brain activity. So it's rather than sort of blowing gently on a campfire, it's sort of like cranking up the flamethrower and just firing at it and just like, take this, ah, screaming <laughs> at it. And it's like the brain just gets kicked up into like several gears, like, whoa, hello. And, um, sorry, so I'd just like to with, pause yeah. there for a second. So, so we're not actually recommending that people go and take ketamine. Oh, to- I was, you know, was, was going to get to that, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so yeah, so ketamine does that. And the same thing with them, um, no, um, Hallucinogenics like magic mushrooms and things, or the chemicals derived from those, they stimulate so much of the brain that it's believed they can sort of get those sluggish neurons back into our regular activity a lot faster. But obviously, the downside of that is if you stimulate all the brain in one go with one chemical, you're stimulating all the brain in one go. The brain does a lot of things, and that can be seriously dangerous if not done right and not done with extreme expert <laughs> interventions and refinement. So again, this is not a recommendation that you go find some ketamine <laughs> and take it, because that will, well, if you do that, maybe depression will be the last of your problems, because <laughs> it's going to cause a lot more problems than not. <laughs> okay, thank yeah. you. Um, and so we've talked about depression in terms of in terms of your brain's ability to change its neurons and neuroplasticity and stress and chemical hormones imbalances and mm. things like that. But I know that a lot of people who are suffering from from depression get talking therapies. So, mm-hmm. how what can a, a talking therapy do to your like the physical structure and behaviour of your brain? Yeah, I mean that it does seem sort of like a bit of an odd leap to make, in that you can talk someone into having sort of a re-energised brain. Um, it 
Well, I think the best therapies seem to be a combination of antidepressants and talking therapies, because you could argue that antidepressants will boost your brain activity back up to normal levels, but talking therapies can then sort of channel that new activity into more helpful, beneficial routes. Um, because you know, I think a lot of talking therapies, the essential gist of them is trying to coach people or train people to think in or you know, instinctively think in ways which are more beneficial than their usual um, negative routes. Like some of the depression will tend to have a very negative mindset. Like they think, you know, reflexively think of the worst is going to happen or the worst has happened or like they are unpleasant person, unworthy of love and respect and concern and things like that. And if you can stop them doing that, that can sort of break the cycle because a lot of these mental health problems are kind of self-fulfilling. Like I mean, if you're anxious, you look for things to be worried about. And because of how powerful our brains are, you, you'll find them. You'll find them. Like, I should, exactly, I should have worried about that. That should have been a big thing to worry about. I mean, I think it's quite telling that uh, for a diagnosis of depression, you have to have the symptoms for two weeks. Uh, for diagnosis, uh, this is called into both the ICD-10 and the uh, the ICD and the DSM, the the main two texts for uh, mental health diagnosis. Uh, so for depression, it's like two weeks of sustained symptoms, but for anxiety, it's got to be in the region of six months, and which sort of shows like how much of <laughs> how much of modern life anxiety is kind of a default. Mm-hmm. That yes, are you worried about this? Well, yeah, you would be. If you, if you, yes, it's, it's hard to think of that, but think if you're planning a wedding. That's a really big, big deal. It's a lot of work, a lot of pressure, a lot of effort. And that's a massive life change, is your wedding, of course. And, you know, that can take six months. So you can have six months of symptoms of anxiety, of just be constantly anxious and stressed for six months and have a perfectly valid reason for it. So it's kind of hard to separate anxiety from other things like that. Um, So, But talking therapies is sort of tend to be all boiled down to, at least in terms of CBT, like cognitive behavioral therapies at least, it's like coach people to think in ways which don't cause this sort of unhelpful outcome. So some of depression, make them think in ways which don't result in them feeling so negative about themselves or the world or someone's got anxiety, talk about it, you know, talk them into doing things or thinking in ways which do not trigger this nervous, anxious, fearful mindset. And it's, you can argue it's kind of like, you know, reprogramming a computer, just thinking, like, this is a bad pathway. Do this one instead and do a workaround. And I guess the analogy I, I use in the book, which I'm sort of kind of happy with and people have approved of in that, if you think of, like, your functioning mental state as your home and how you, you know, how that works is, you, you know, your, um, <clears throat> and, you know, you travel to and from it, it depends on what you're doing. So one day you know, there's a bridge that leads to your house. That's how you normally achieve your good mental state, your regular mental state, then one day collapses. Could be because of trauma, because of, of general wear and tear, or just you know, a flaw in the structure we didn't know about. So you've got, you know, the bridge collapses while you're on the other side. So you need to get back to your home, your regular mental state, and you can't get there because the usual route is denied to you now. So the medical route, like using drugs and stuff, would be someone come along and build a new bridge. Uh, maybe not as good, or maybe it's like a pontoon, or maybe it's a... Uh, just a scaffolding or a big plank or something, but it can get you there. It's not perfect and it's a bit more treacherous, but that also involves you just sat there waiting, waiting for that to happen and while you're outside cold and wet. Whereas a 
So a talking therapy would be more like someone coming along and saying, okay, so you can't get back to your house. I got a spare pair of boots. I got a map. I got a compass. Let's find another way around. And so they guide you. We go downstream, see if you can find another way across. And and they sort of help you to find another route to your destination, which is your you know a, a healthy, functional, functional mental state. Ideally, you'd use both. Obviously, okay, so this person's fixing the bridge while I'm going to find another way around. Between us, we'll get back you know, eventually. And that's why sort of combined therapies tend to be the most um, effective overall. Because you're taking two bites of the cherry. You've got you know, double the chance and the brain's being helped in two different ways. And that's well, at least two. And that's always going to be more helpful, I suppose. You touched on this a bit with your um, wedding metaphor. So <laughs> I something that um, I wonder about anxiety disorders is that there are often things going on in the world which are a genuine cause of anxiety, the emotion, um, so anxiousness, like mm. climate change or, I suppose right now, the pandemic going on. So there's a lot of people of course, who yeah. would reasonably be feeling anxious about that. And so I sort of think, of, I don't know if this is correct, but I sort of think of an anxiety disorder as when you're feeling um, a lot of anxiety for something that's sort of unwarranted, so it's something that doesn't really require that level of anxiety. So where's where's the line between feeling anxiety all the time over something that's real and out there? Is that like hmm. a disorder or does it have to be something that's not, you know, feeling anxiety over things that aren't actually going to, going to hurt you? Uh, yeah, you've pretty much <clears throat> got a spot on there and that's anxiety disorders are normally recognised by the anxious response being disproportionate to what the the source is and but like i say someone's worried about climate change yeah that's obviously something big and massively important that we should be worried about you know it's an it's an existential issue um so yeah be worried about that is logical so if you if you've been anxious about climate change for five years and like i imagine greta thunberg has been then yes she's she's not got a disorder she's just got a logical perspective on what's going on but i guess it's a case of if you're anxious about climate change to the point where you're in your room sort of huddled in the pillow, just constantly in the fetal position, cringing, shivering about the possibility of climate change, that would be a disproportionate response because, yes, it's right to be anxious about it, but this is debilitatingly anxious about, uh, sort of, you know, it's, it's a very much a long-term thing. You know, you're not going to walk out your front door and be hit in the face by climate change because it's not a thing that can do that. And I think that's where a lot of the distinction comes in. Like, yes, you should be anxious about this thing, but should you be this anxious about it? But again, that's also where, like, the again, diagnosing these things is really tricky. It's not like it's um, you know, this one clear bullet point. You go right, these three things, boom, boom, boom. You're anxious now. Well done. Have, have a certificate or whatever, <laughs> whatever they do <laughs> in that respect. It's um, it's really quite um, <clears throat> marked in that. You know, it's, they're so nebulous. Like this person, you can just have an anxious personality. You can be someone who is constantly worried about stuff. And that's not a disorder. That's your default state of being. Uh, whereas someone else who's far more upbeat and far more chilled, if they became like that person, then that would maybe suggest an anxiety disorder because it's atypical for them. And you know, there's been some interesting data which shows that because uh, during the pandemic and the lockdown, you'd expect people with depression and anxiety to have worse problems because obviously there's more to worry about, more to be depressed about. But what data there is suggests that, if anything, they've sort of plateaued. There's been no obvious increase. And some people reported a, 
a lessening of their symptoms if they, like they had pre-existing conditions. And it does sort of make sense in a way in that, like you say, if you're anxious about things which aren't there, which haven't happened, and then a pandemic hits, that sort of justifies your anxiety. Like people were worried the worst was going to happen. Then it does happen. I think, oh, I wasn't unwell. I'm just I'm just rational. <laughs> I, I was correct. And that can be oddly reassuring. It can be a de-stressor because you know, there's nothing, when the worst has happened, there's nothing to worry about anymore, I guess. But, you know, it does take, before my father passed away, I was like hyper-stressed for weeks on end. And afterwards, I wasn't stressed. I was sort of grieving. I was hit impact, but it was not as fraught because, you know, the worst happened. And I'm, not, I'm never going to say that's a good thing, but it was a very different way of, you know, it was a very different emotional experience in that respect. And that's going to be something which obviously will manifest in a lot of different people. But yeah, like it's the it's the it's it's how proportionate it is. Um, anxiety disorders are so wide ranging as well. Like you know, PTSD is an anxiety disorder, but so is generalized anxiety disorder. Generalized anxiety disorder, you say, it has no specific cause for the anxiety you're feeling. PTSD has a very obvious cause for the anxiety problems you're feeling because you know, there's the one major traumatic event which causes this to happen. But they're both classed as anxiety disorders because symptomatically they have similar properties and seem to affect us in similar ways in the brain. But even like low-level things like phobias are one of the more common anxiety disorders. Like arachnophobia is a very well-known phobia. And you know, a lot of people don't like spiders, but arachnophobia... If you've got arachnophobia, you're really terrified of them. And I think the most perhaps frustrating part of it is people with that, they know that it's not logical. You can tell them all you want. Don't be afraid of that spider. It's like the size of a two-pence coin it's on the other side of the room. It's not going to hurt you. On a logical level, people with arachnophobia will know that, but the fact is that they don't react like that because the more fundamental subconscious parts of their brain, which deal with that, they're... Um, they're in control there. So they think spider, ah, scream, jump, run. They fire up the fight or flight response, whether you like it or not. And you have this extreme panic reaction, which is illogical, but that doesn't stop it. And yeah, so when it comes to, when it comes to anxiety disorders, it's like you know, the, the response is disproportionate or unwarranted to what the trigger is, if there is one. You know, sometimes they don't have a trigger. Like panic disorders are real pain like that in that, there's no obvious cause for these panic attacks. And that's why they're so debilitating and so problematic. You can't anticipate them. You can't do anything about them. And again, I address this in the book too. Some evidence suggests that you know, panic attacks are normally caused by novel stimuli. So you know, it's, it literally has to be something unexpected which causes it. And therefore you can't do anything about it. And ergo, they become so problematic because there's no real workaround outside of therapy and things. So yeah, so yeah, you're right in that it's going to be something, you know, people have anxiety all the time, but when this, when this anxiety has no obvious cause or is way more than the cause warrants, that's when you think, okay, that's not meant to be happening. That was Dean Burnett, author of Psychological. His book is out now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Science Focus podcast. The January issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Also in this issue, we explore the greatest mysteries of the universe. Dr. Michael Mosley shares his top tips for keeping your blood pressure on track. And as always, our panel of experts answer your questions. Of course, there's much more inside and on sciencefocus.com. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. 
We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.